Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 164. What principles should you consider when designing a Python library? How do you construct a library API that is understandable and easy to use? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We share an article about building Python library APIs. The piece provides advice for package structure, naming, error handling, and more. The author guides you toward Pythonic principles by comparing clunky versus elegant design examples. Christopher discusses his recent video course on Jinja templating. The course covers creating text files with programmatic content and employing rich templates to structure the front end of Python web applications. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including several news updates, why membership tests are fast for the range function, CLI tools hidden in the Python standard library, a thread about the right way to install Python, recipes for using the Polders library, and a project for feature flags within Django. This episode is brought to you by Sneak. Sneak helps Python developers stay secure without slowing down by providing real-time code scanning and actionable fix advice right from their IDE. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. Hey there. We got a big bundle of news yeah. this week. Uh, <laughs> You'd think with it being summertime, there'd be less going on, but uh, yeah, we got a whole bunch. Yeah, great. So uh, I guess we'll just dig right in. Yeah. Uh, so PyLadies has announced that they're planning a conference for December. It's still in early stages, and they're looking for volunteers. So if uh, you're interested in helping them organize and think about these kinds of things, then uh, reach out, and we'll uh, send you a link for where you can do that. Cool. The next three items are all from the Python Software Foundation. First, they just recently had their board election, and they've announced their five new members. We'll link to the list of that. And I think you know a couple of them, don't you? Yeah, actually, uh, I met Denny Perez, and Denny is actually RealPython's own Andres Panetta's wife, who's our community manager. And um, she's very much a community organizer and manager and met her when she was volunteering at Pi Cascades, I know she volunteered at PyCon. So definitely a mover and shaker. And I, I can see why she got some votes there to get involved. And if you're interested and you don't recognize the names or not familiar with those people and want to learn a little bit more about, you know, why these people wanted to be on the board, there was a set of interviews that Jay Miller did. He does a, a podcast slash YouTube thing called um, Python Community News. And I'll include a link that is basically a playlist with the everybody who is uh, nominated. So you can kind of check them out and uh, see what you think. Yeah, good, good luck to them all. Well, that's, uh, it's a big job and uh, helps, the, yeah. uh, helps the community keep going. So that's fantastic. 
So what else from the PSF? Next, uh, two different job things. Uh, first, uh, you may remember there was a posting a while back for a security developer in residence. Uh, well, they've made the hire. Uh, his name's Seth Larson, and he's got a great post sort of introducing himself, talking about what the job entails and what he hopes to accomplish. So, you know, again, we'll link to that. And then on the job topic as well, they've opened up a new position to go along with the developer in residence. They're adding a deputy developer in residence. So if this is something that interests you, the applications are being accepted until July 26th. Yeah, you'll be working alongside with uh, Wukish. So that should be pretty interesting. Yeah, and in fact, I think that was one of the. I think that was the first post I saw was Will McGugan posting, "Who wouldn't want to work with Lukash?" So, uh, yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> go work with Lukash. Okay, a couple non PSF items. Uh, Django has released a security fix for their major supported versions. It modifies a potential denial of service vulnerability in the email validator. And finally, PyPI is deprecating eggs. This doesn't really affect too many people. The world has more or less moved on to wheels. Uh, but if you've been coding for a while and you remember the egg format, well, it's going away. Existing projects with eggs will continue to be downloadable. They're not going to kick things off. Uh, but new uploads will stop allowing the egg format as of August 1st. All right. And as a side note, any idea why they're called eggs? I'm... I, I dug, I couldn't find it. So wheels are because of cheese wheels, a reference <laughs> yeah, to the yeah, cheese yeah. That shop, makes more sense. which was the original name of Pi Pi, which is yeah. a Monty Python sketch. But yeah, I couldn't find anything that said egg. All I could ever find was egg is to, egg is to Python as jar is to Java. And I'm like, that doesn't help me. It doesn't explain where you came up <laughs> with the idea. So yeah. anyways. When I saw that packaging solution of Hatch and Hatchling, I thought that had something to do with it kind of retroactively, but I guess not either. Um, anyway, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. So that gets us into topics. I have a real Python one to start with. It's actually kind of a shorter one from Gerarna. I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> Gerarna has been on the show several times, and he has a new article that is called Why Are Membership Tests So Fast for Range in Python? What he's talking about here is looking for a particular item, like using in or something like that, that operator, to see if a particular value is within a range as opposed to maybe some other iterable, like a list or something else. I guess, really, it's kind of an exploration of range in a lot of ways. Um, he does a lot of kind of interesting experiments with it playing around with similarities and differences and how you can kind of work with them. And so if you like these kind of deep dives into these sort of intermediate, you know, data structure sort of topics, this is a, definitely for you in that sense. It, it's a very much, I think, a exploration of this whole area. Range is most commonly used by programmers in for loops um, to iterate over a known range of numbers. You may not know there's some other kind of interesting uses for it. The big thing that he's showing here that's interesting is that you can pick out elements of a range or check whether a given number belongs within that range. And so that's kind of what this is exploring. But he also shows some other kind of similarities. He talks about you can actually use indexes on a range. So if you did a conversion, in, in this example, he does like this thing of creating a range of zero to 10 million and then converts that to a list. And so with those two items, you could kind of do different things like 
indexing on them, checking the length, or you can look for a certain element that's a member of it using the in operator. And then he shows that if you were to time that, using time it, and they both look for something that, that isn't existent in that, like negative one, it is several orders different. Uh, it takes like 4.6 microseconds is in his test of looking at these 10 million numbers for it to see that in the range it's not there, whereas it takes like 5.7 seconds. So microseconds versus seconds, pretty big difference there. And the main reason for that is that it's really more of a formula as opposed to looking through all the different values that are in it. And he goes through defining what that that formula would be. You know, a range has a start, a stop, and then potentially a step that it moves at. Like basically, how does it count? Does it go every two numbers or every three numbers? And that step, I think, is where you could see a big performance difference, right? Because if it's, if you're just checking is a number between one and a thousand or one and a million, you're going to use an if statement. Yeah. But if you're checking whether or not it's a power of every three or something like that, it starts to become messier. And so that that step piece can uh, it basically becomes an interesting optimization. Right. So you could be, you know, doing all odd numbers between things or every uh, fifth or something like that type of element in there. And so the formula that is looking for it would take the element that you're searching for, what the start and the stop of the range is and what the step value is equal to, the default being equal to one. And then it would return if the start is less than or equal to element or also less than the stop. And the element minus the start, doing a uh, modulo, dividing by the step, and making sure that there's nothing left over, then we can say, yeah, okay, that number is going to be, you know, contained within there. It's kind of not needing to find the exact value, you know, and in there it can actually just say, okay, yeah, that would be included. Like it would be an even number or odd number or, or, you know, every five or something like that. So that's a pretty easy formula for it to kind of look through and find the element as opposed to, you know, searching through a list. So that's interesting concept. But then he goes through and says, well, hey, let's talk about this a little bit further. Let's actually, how does Python implement a range? And by default, range is actually implemented in C. So that's partly also why it's much faster. So he thinks about, well, how could you implement it in Python? And so takes you through that process as he does a little bit. I've had this uh, theme a few times of, hey, range may look like a function because you call it right? But if you dig deeper, it's actually a class, and its constructor is when you call, you know, range and put the different parameters within it. So that, again, that whole next section of the article goes into creating the custom class that works in a really similar range, and he goes through and implements the different special methods that you would need, like dunder iter and dunder len, but also dunder contains, which would do what we're just talking about. So if you call in on that, it would re recreate that formula from before. The rest of the article talks about is a range, quote unquote, better than a list. And of course, that's really always going to depend on what you're trying to accomplish in there. And then it has different looks at lists can have different objects within them. They aren't ordered or, you know, by default, they're not sorted and, and things like that. Does also comparisons with sets and dictionaries. So again, it's just a real exploration of the topic of ranges and kind of how they're structured. And then with this kind of overarching question of like, okay, well, how, how would this work as far as like determining membership inside of a Python range? So it's kind of a fun exploration and looking forward to uh, 
what Garana writes this coming fall as we are approaching 312 coming along pretty fast here. So what was your first one here? I've got an article by Simon Willison, and it's called CLI Tools Hidden in the Python Standard Library. And we've touched on tiny little bits of this before. Um, there are some runnable tools in the standard library that you can use from Python directly. The two I use most are the JSON tool that pretty prints JSON and the HTTP server. So if you're new to this idea, you can run python-m json.tool and then file name. And if that file's got JSON in it, it pretty prints the JSON to the screen. And likewise, you can do python-m http.server and that runs a web server hosting the content from the local directory. So if you've got a directory full of HTML files, you can run that command and hit localhost port 8000 to see those files as if they're served. And I've got a couple of little projects and things where I've got like a static serve libraries where every once in a while when you're testing it, it's just easy to go oh, here, push, and run the Python thing. So, uh, so I use those two fairly frequently. So anyhow, uh, Simon was aware of a couple of these and decided he'd go spelunking through the standard library to see what else was there. He futzed around with ripgrep, which is a fancier grep tool, looking for files with things like dunder name in them and a few other things that indicates this might be runnable. The end result is over 90 answers. Um, <laughs> Quite the list. Little surprised at that. Uh, so the article starts out by uh, talking about sort of how he did the searching and goes into highlighting what he found useful. And then he completely admits I didn't look at all of them. So then uh, he does uh, kind of talk about a few that run through a couple of uh, the key ones. The first one, which I hadn't seen before, was uh, Python M site. And that outputs a bunch of information about your Python syspath configuration as well as some variables as to like where things are looking for for packages. So if you were wondering why something isn't loading or where it's getting it from, um, that's a quick way of doing it without having to go into the REPL. One I just used recently was python-m base64, and then it takes a file name, and that allows you to base64 encode a file or base64 decode it if you use different switches on the argument. I just used this recently. I was writing a test for a Django project that took an image. And rather than keep a separate image file, I base encoded a one pixel GIF and then took that whatever turned into 30 character string and put it in the test so that I didn't have to manage another file. So I actually used this little command line trick to do that. And then a couple ones for uh, compiler geeks out there. Python-m tokenize file name runs the compiler's tokenizer on a Python file and outputs each of the tokens that it found. And there's a companion, which is python-m ast and file name, yeah. which calls the abstract syntax tree library. And I've, I've used the library a bunch. I did not realize you could get at it on the command line. So it's kind of neat. Outputs a phenomenal amount of information, but uh, if you want to see how the compiler works and you know what it's seeing when you're uh, looking at a particular Python file, those are quick and easy ways to do that. Yeah, both those are really handy for the the people that want to spelunk the language. Yes, exactly. Really dive yeah. into them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the last one I'll mention, which I can't imagine ever, ever using myself, uh, but uh, is interesting that it's there, is Python-M calendar, which, as the name kind of implies, outputs a calendar. 
by default, <laughs> it shows the, uh, current, the current year. Yeah, so okay. all the months in the current year. But it does allow arguments. So you can say just this year or this month in this year. And there's some a bunch of different arguments for things like how much space is between them and how many columns and all making it pretty and whatever. So some neat stuff in here. And maybe he'll do a follow-up with some of the other 80. That sounds like a fun little CLI project for you know people just wanting to yep. create something quickly. Go, yeah. <laughs> go play. See what's there. Awesome. There are a ton of ways for malicious actors to get into the systems you build, like SQL injection, arbitrary code execution, and out-of-bounds rights, just to name a few. Luckily, you don't have to be a security expert to keep your apps secure. Sneak is a developer security platform that helps you secure your applications from the start. And Sneak does it all right from the existing tools and workflows you already use. IDEs, CLI, repos, pipelines, and more. So your work isn't interrupted. Start your free Sneak account at sneak.co slash realpython. That's S-N-Y-K dot C-O slash realpython. So my next one is from Ben Hoyt. It's on his blog. And when I looked at it initially, I kind of just glossed over the name. I'm like, oh, this looks interesting, designing Pythonic APIs. And I missed the word library in there. So designing Pythonic library APIs is going in a completely different area. You know, people think of APIs very often. They think of, okay, you know, web-based application interfaces, where this is actually talking about designing your own library and how, as far as the you know, application programming interface, how is the end user going to use this thing? How can you design it in a way that it's friendly, usable, understandable, approachable? How do you get rid of boilerplate? And it's a really well-structured article, and it's very, very detailed, and I'm not going to go through every one of them, but he has... a you're in a hurry. <laughs> he has a set of takeaways and has them all listed at the end and you can kind of get into there. I'll, I'll mention some of these things, but it's definitely one of these articles that you can dig into and find gem after gem after gem as you kind of go through it. Um, I was really impressed with it. Lots of stuff to, you know, worthwhile for digging through. His summary, this article describes some principles I've found useful for designing good Python library APIs including structure, naming, error handling, type annotations, and more. It's a written version of a talk I gave in June 2023 at the Christchurch Python Meetup. I'm guessing that wasn't recorded because it didn't have a link for that, but it's definitely, he thought about it quite a bit. As anybody who's given a talk before probably knows, you really need to kind of structure everything well, and so the article probably just wasn't too hard for him to kind of structure after having already spoke it. He starts with an example of building an HTTP request using the standard library, the URL lib.request. And if you look at it, it <laughs> it's a lot. It's five lines of fairly hard to parse code, partly because of the names of these methods are, you know, multiple levels. So there's a URL lib.request.http password manager, MGR, sorry, with default realm. And then after that, manager.addPassword, and then you're having to connect that, and then you have to create a handler, and then you create an opener, and then finally your 
returning response using opener.open with all that stuff kind of tied together. And, you know, as you look at it, you go, wow, this feels like a lot of work initially. And so he quickly mentions, well, you know, that's partly why someone created the request library back in 2011 and uses that as an example to kind of compare that. And if you haven't used request before, you would in one line create a response equals request.get, put in the web address. If it needs authorization, you then would add auth equals and then a tuple of like username and password. And then boom, you have this response object that you can then pull all kinds of different things out. And that's really a nice API. It's very usable, it's understandable, again, approachable. And so he goes through that a little bit further, you know, within only having a couple of requests there. The takeaway from this is good API design is very important to the user. He shows as an example that the idea behind the request library started right at the beginning with an outline. He was able to find the very, very first commit to the request library. And it truly is an outline. It's it's very interesting that way. The first line is import URL lib2, but then it has creating three different classes with just basically the concepts, you know, triple quoted, like this is going to be the request, this is going to be the response object, this is going to be the auth object. And then inside that, as far as the auth object, it would define Dunder init with a username and password. And then below that, defining the functions that you would need, get, post, put, delete, the types of HTTP stuff that you want to do. And so it's, I don't know, 15 lines of code, something like that, as far as like an outline. You know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there, but it gives you an idea. Names have been created. The functionality should make sense to somebody looking at this as far as what they're going to do. And it, the takeaway there was when creating a library, start with a good base and then iterate from there. So that's the theme, just kind of like giving you really solid examples of where good practices have been put. And so speaking of practices and talking about things Pythonic, he brings up the Zen of Python, which has been a bit of a theme for us um, over the last couple of weeks. And in this particular one, the Zen of Python, he focuses on two of the lines from the Zen, um, if you need a refresher on that and didn't catch, we discussed it in a pretty detailed way um, from Bartosz Jitkinski's article two weeks ago, and Christopher was talking about it, but he focuses on two of the lines for this API stuff about explicit is better than implicit. And then another one where he focuses even more is flat is better than nested. He then goes to pick on the standard library APIs, um, which you already did a little bit with URL lib, but basically for not following some of these rules, especially the flat is better than nested. Um, he gives a couple examples, like in the email module or email package, he says, read this one, email.mime.multipart.mime.multipart would be, you know, the idea of creating this multi-part email message, but it seems very nested, if you will. It's like, why wasn't it just email multi-part message or email dot multi-part? He's got a bugbear that he talks about of threading dot thread. And the very first um, parameter to the thread class is something called group. It's unused. The doc says that it is reserved for future extension. He's like, well, that reservation has been for 26 years. Um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, that way that there's things that if you're going to implement something like that, it seems like kind of a long time to, to wait. 
But, you know, that happens with, I think, all kinds of construction projects, if you will. And the, the standard library is definitely one of these ongoing construction projects to think about. So he spends a little more time talking about the advice that he gets into from there is about modules and package structure. And it's really solid, in my opinion. He uses requests as an example again. An end user, if you can have use requests, you typically just import requests. And at that point, you can use request.get, request.session, partly because the, the way it was structured is that it's implemented in a way that, okay, the get itself is implemented in the API file and sessions is implemented in the sessions.py file. But you don't need to import the submodules because of the way the dunder init was done. He goes through the code showing dunder init.py. It's importing from API, import, delete, get, post, put from dot sessions, import session. So those things are going to be available under request, you know, ready to go, which is kind of nice. It's a, a neat way to structure it. And then he gives you yet another example, kind of a, a toy way of doing it, creating a fish and chips app where he shows how to structure that dunder init.py and building the API file, building the shop file with its class structure and kind of how that stuff would work. He, again, kind of does a little bit of picking on some other examples of things out there of, of, about ways that some libraries do that nesting thing again. He picks on Django in this particular c- case. Um, he talks about th- the way that it imports files. Typically, you do from django.core.files import file. But for images, you would do from django.core.files.images import image file. And he's like, why are those nested and why are they, you know, kind of separate that way? And I wondered about that, Chris. I don't know if you have any opinion on that, like the I, the super nestedness of Django. I, I think some of it is historical. Like I, one of the ones that drives me nuts is they've got a section called contrib. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think the intention at some point was to like pull it out of the package. And so it was like things that were contributed from the outside. Well, the entire auth process is in there. The entire admin process is in there. So like, there's all this stuff that is now considered core parts of the library that are one layer deeper because they're grouped together for what I assume was originally political reasons. I don't know. Somebody can correct me on that. But yeah. I, I think a lot of it with these things, it's uh, uh, history gets in the way, right? Um you know, and, and we talked about a couple uh, a couple sessions back about PEP seven thirteen, which has been accepted into Python three twelve, if I remember correctly, which is the callable modules, which will help some of this, right? Because yeah. you don't you won't have to do the from pprint import pprint thing anymore. You can uh, you you'd be able to uh, import the use the module directly, so it'll help flatten things a bit once people start taking advantage of that. Yeah, so it's really. Diving into this design idea of keeping things fairly simple, it, of course, then gets into naming, which <laughs> it's one of those memes. Naming is difficult. Finding that kind of weird combination of noun and verbs. And he has some takeaway advice that I'll just summarize here. It's just, names should be short if they can, <laughs> while still being clear. The request package itself gives you a pretty good name to begin with that you can then just kind of tack on, you know, request.get or request.response. And it kind of makes some sense as far as like noun and verb there. His feeling is function names should be verbs and classes should be nouns, but you don't have to necessarily get hung up on it. A language that is a little 
over the top with this uh, that I've seen is like Swift, where it's very much this jumbled set of words to basically indicate everything that's happening along the line. I'm, I'm trying to think of one that is in there that he gives it an example of where it's just like a, a crazy long type of name of yeah, Java's bad for that. Like, particularly some of the libraries like Java Beans and things like that. It looks like they, it's all written in German, right? Instead of it, it it's a sentence without a space in it, right? And so, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So it's just something to think about in that way. He gives some additional gems as you go through it. Opinions about exceptions and how that should be done. His ideas on versioning and then his ideas on type annotations. And generally just I felt like it was good advice, you know, not necessarily have to need to follow all of it. Not unlike where we've talked about PEP8 or PEP20, the Zen of Python. I haven't seen an article like this where it was really kind of, you know, why do modules this way? Why do, you know, this sort of stuff and structure this way? And I felt like it put a lot of these ideas in one good place. So what do you got next? Uh, well, it's been a few weeks since I've been all self-indulgent. Uh, so once again, it's time to talk about one of my courses. So uh, uh, enough <laughs> yeah. about me, Mr. Billy. What do you think about me? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, this one is called Jinja Templating, and it's based on a similar article by Philip Axony. If you're not familiar with Jinja or Jinja 2, if you want to be entirely pedantically correct, uh, it's a templating tool. Uh, think of like mail merge in Word, but on steroids. You give it a text file and a context, and it combines those into a result, filling in things like variables and doing conditional operations on the file. So the first example in the course is actually kind of mail mergey. You write an email template for some students who did well in a Python course that you're teaching, and then you run a script and it generates an individualized message for each student. So when you write a program that uses Jinja, you typically are loading a template from a file and then rendering that template using a context dictionary. The dictionary contains information that the template engine uses to create the results. So in that student example, the dictionary contains the student's name and the score they got on the test. And then the template is this text file that uses double curly braces to indicate variable replacement. Um, these are also known as mustache variables, which is just fun to say. So uh, double brace name closing double brace gets replaced with the value that corresponds to name as a key in your dictionary. So each of the students' names, for example. The language goes far deeper than that, and it's got all sorts of control structures. So you can do loops and conditional blocks, and in fact, you can even define your own macros. One of the most common uses of Jinja is to deal with HTML. HTML's a lot of, got a lot of repetition and a lot of boilerplate in it, so yep. uh, being able to <laughs> treat that more like reusable code blocks has a lot of value. And the course gives you a quick intro to Flask, which is a web framework, and it integrates nicely with Jinja, and you use Jinja to create the HTML templates. So you get sort of a two-for-one here, a quick little intro to Flask, just to see how Jinja gets used in the real world a lot. Yeah. I mentioned that loop thing uh, before. Uh, common use of that is, say, to build lists in HTML, right? So you take your context dictionary, say it has a list of things that you want to show on the page, and then you use a for tag to loop over that list and output, say, the li tags for each item in an unordered list. This allows you to write a lot less HTML and to dynamically change what appears on the page by changing the context dictionary in the calling function. So Flask allows you to map URLs to a function, and then the function renders the result, returning the HTML. So this all kind of glues together nicely. 
in addition to providing a bunch of control tags, Jinja also allows you to write your own. And this can be really, really powerful. It can lead you to like re- interesting reuse cases, like writing your own nav tag or something along those lines. So you can get quite, uh, quite deep in this stuff. And of course, if you're like me and you're a Django person and you run into a case where you would go, I want Django templating outside of Django, well, Jinja is your answer. Most of the base tags are very, very similar. The libraries have been influencing each other for quite some time. Uh, so if you've already got Django skills, picking up Jinja is really pretty quick. Fun course to write, and I hope folks find it useful. Yeah, I think that the whole idea of the typical boilerplate that you would normally insert HTML-wise, is just, it's so much nicer to just like build off of this base and add the different things, things like, like you said, like a nav bar or, or even just other sections of, of things, the, the block formatting and, and all that stuff is really, it's a smart way to go about it. Yeah, there's a tool, it's public, but it's written by a real Python author and for real Python authors, but it's out there in open source uh, called Markplates. And we use it to suck code examples into an article so that if you find a bug in the code, you have to go figure out whether or not it gets included in the, the article. And it's essentially Jinja templating. You just, he's, uh, Jim wrote some custom tags and essentially you run it and it goes off and goes, oh, I need this function out of that file and sucks it into the article, right? So there's, there's all sorts of neat little use cases wherever you're trying to do sort of text management stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, we had a couple kind of quick discussion things we thought we'd kind of throw in here. They're both Twitter threads, even as messy as Twitter has been lately. Um, <laughs> one note, to access them, you have to have a Twitter account. Hopefully that will change eventually. Um, I'm not sure if, if, if that's back open again, but um, we're going to give it a shot because we thought these, at least as a discussion point, were kind of fun. We could kind of add a little. One is uh, more humorous than the other. <laughs> so do you want to start with the first one? Sure. This is a post by Frank Eno, and it is a straight discussion. He's asking everyone to kill a developer in four words or less. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, there's some interesting stuff in here. Of course, being the internet, people don't necessarily read what people put above them. So it's, uh, it's even interesting to see how much some of it gets uh, repeated. Yeah. One of my favorite was uh, off by one error, which is a common programming problem. And I found it really funny because there's a whole bunch of people in here who did things in five words, which technically is a off by one error. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. that's kind of fun. Uh, the uh, There was a bunch that started with it's just. So there was like, it's just programming. It's just a web page. There's five words. Uh, it's just a small change. It's just a button. Yeah. Which... Uh... It leads back to the conversation we had uh, a week ago or two weeks ago. This one, I think, is in that that category. It is really simple. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, my one that popped out to me just because I'm getting tired of so much of the press coverage was Chat GPT, uh, <laughs> and then yeah. one that uh, kind of really hit home for me was Kill minus nine one. Uh, which if you're not a Unix programmer, <laughs> this is a single line instruction that can take your machine down. And uh, I actually have experience with this. So years and years ago, I was teaching a course on a interface engine at a hospital. And the idea behind an interface engine is you build these little programmatic blocks that take data in and reshape them for data going out. And it's usually used to get different systems to talk to each other. 
And it was a whole GUI tool. So we had a classroom set up, but the server really was not set up for 30 people to be doing this at the same time. Mm. And so it kept falling over and I kept having to log in at the back of the room and kill a couple processes in order to keep the server alive. And one of those times I meant to kill minus nine, a large number and accidentally kill minus nine one, which takes the entire server down. And it was like something out of a movie because I was sitting at the back of the classroom and I watched one by one as each one of their monitors turned <laughs> off and it like slowly worked its way back the room coming for me. It's a beautiful cascade. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, this was like the fourth time the server had crashed that day. So they all just assumed that the it was no different than the first three times. <laughs> and so it's mechanic some someone else is there, it, not it, a user error. It was wasn't the admin at the back. <laughs> Don't stare at the man behind the curtain. But uh, yeah, so uh, so I've learned to be a little more careful when I issue kill commands when I'm logged in as root. Yeah, this one would be related. You took down production. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, and I like the I should have mentioned in the but the client thinks <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then uh, one that uh, it's a common one for uh, anybody looking in startups is uh, will you take equity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And then the the other the most famous of all's push code on Friday. Yeah. Let's deploy this Friday. Yeah. So. I came up with a couple of my own that are Python specific. Okay. So mutable default arguments. <laughs> okay. Parentheses and assert. So I'm doing well. These are three. I'm I'm sticking under four. Okay. Trailing comma, because that's one that bites me all the time. That uh, wasn't yeah. meant to be a tuple. Uh, and then the last <laughs> one, which actually is dead on four words, is edit list while iterating. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're, I don't know, if I was a little more talented, I probably could turn the both the four of those into a haiku. Maybe, maybe, that's, there maybe there's, a, there's a Twitter thread we should start. Or Limerick or something. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It covers a topic that Christopher discussed this week and is an exploration of how to simplify working with HTML and web front ends with Python. The course is simply titled Jinja Templating. It's based on a RealPython tutorial by previous guest, Philip Xeni. And the video course is presented by my co-host, Christopher Trudeau. And he shows you how to install the Jinja template engine how to create your first Jinja template and render the Jinja template in Flask, how to use for loops and conditional statements within Jinja, how nesting works within the Jinja templates, how to modify variables with filters, and how to use macros to add functionality to your front end. Using templates is essential in full stack web development. And with Jinja, you can build rich templates that power the front end of your Python web applications. Like most of the video courses on Real Python, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Each lesson includes a transcript, including closed captions. And you'll have access to code samples for the techniques shown. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. The other one that I, I threw in um, as far as a post to kind of discuss briefly, and this relates to a discussion that we had a couple weeks ago. Also, this is from Chris Albon on Twitter. What is the right way to install Python on a new Mac? 
M2 MacBook, and I assume it isn't the system Python 3, right? Maybe Homebrew? <sighs> um, <laughs> big sigh. Number one, there is no system Python 3 in it. If you type Python on a M1 or M2 MacBook, current ones of them, it doesn't have a version of Python in it that you get from just typing Python. I didn't know that. They got rid of it. Yeah, oh. yeah. It's it's no longer there. So that confusion is, isn't there, but the naming scheme is still there as far as like, you know, typing Python 3. So what was our advice? Our advice is to install from python.org, please. <laughs> I got in a bit of a back and forth with somebody in that actual thread um, who had said that, oh, don't use the python.org one because it doesn't include uh, Tkinter and then something else they were saying it didn't include. I'm like, actually, uh, that's incorrect. That's the one version that does. Um, you might be thinking of something like PyEnv, who does these abbreviated versions of installs and so forth. Oh, they didn't. It said it didn't include Idle, and I'm like, um, no. <laughs> Both those things are there. It's just, in my opinion, now the problem is that it's the internet, and I think Chris Alban is known more in the data science community so his responses that bubbled up very very quickly were all kind of from data science people and they were all like conda or mini conda um, and things like that and that seems to be the winning as far as like the internet voting on twitter about it there's a handful of people that started to chime in with docker i don't suggest you go that route i just feel like if you're trying to just do python <laughs> the python.org one is definitely going to be the simplest way to get you going it includes all the standard built-in resources. But yeah, it's interesting to kind of read through it. And then I don't know what your opinions are, but I I do not suggest using something like Homebrew because you're just, it's the you know regex thing of now you have two problems of adding something like that to it. So yeah, I've had a lot of challenges with Homebrew. It, it's it's saved my bacon a couple times and it's fried it as almost as often. So I, I, yeah, have, yeah, yeah. I have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with it. Uh, I always just use python.org. Um, I'm surprised to hear anybody mention Docker and uh, simply because uh, it's known not to be performant on a Mac. Yeah, the M2 Max or the M series Max is it's it's an emulation, so it's not working very well at yeah, all. Yeah, I, I do wonder whether with the M2s being so fast that you don't notice it. I know I just can't run it on my old system. I'm, I've got an older Intel one, and it, it just brings yeah. it to a screeching halt. So uh, I do wonder whether somebody just replied back as in Docker, all the things, and without actually trying it on a Mac. Yeah, I've had the most luck with the .org. The only thing, because I use virtual env, you know, it's like for me, it's .org and then virtual env immediately. Yeah. And the only thing I do do, which is a little sort of in the advanced and I wouldn't point a new person at it, but I will go in and make sure that the where it gets installed, it builds some aliases and I do make sure that they uh, have version number aliases in it. So like if you install virtual env, it won't create a script called virtual env-3.11. It's just virtual env. And so the last one that got installed wins. So there, so I do tend to tinker a little bit. I go into the uh, library frameworks and rename a couple folder files, excuse me, just to uh, to get that right. But, uh, but otherwise, vanilla python.org has been always my go-to. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Anyway, it, just, it had bubbled up to me because it was like a fairly popular thing. Two million views, <laughs> something wow. like that. <laughs> I don't know. It's I, I don't know if that's correct or not. 
I I thought we were the last two Mac users. I thought they were all switching over to uh, the VR goggles. So uh. yeah, I don't know, but it has like uh, 111 you know quotes in it. And I was like, oh my gosh, so lots of opinions there. But and it, you know, it everything is personal in that sense. But I, I can tell you, as a M1 Mac owner, um, I have a MacBook Pro. I've installed three versions of Python on it for testing for different things. So I have three eight, three ten, or three. No, three nine, three ten, three eleven, installed on it. I haven't been doing the uh, the betas, but and they're all from Python to Oregon. They they all have idle. They all have Tkinter. They all have all the standard stuff on it, and I'm able to run all my different projects. Now I'm not doing big data science, Conda style packaging and so forth. But if that's your world, then that's your world, and that makes sense. And to to kind of stay there. But anyway, so just kind of a. <laughs> a repeat of advice that we were giving a couple weeks ago. So. so you're telling me the Python packaging problem hasn't been solved in the last two weeks? Uh... <laughs> I guess they're still working on it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That takes us to projects. Um, did you want to go first on this or should I go? Go ahead. Okay. So mine is a fork of a project. If you're not aware, there's a, a thing called Pandas Cookbook and it's recipes for basically having you practice Python's Pandas library. Somebody has forked that. The original one was from Julia Evans, and there's about like 16 other contributors to that and kind of an ongoing project to get people going and working with it. This one is the Polar's cookbook. So it's using Polar's to do a lot of the same kinds of stuff. And back in episode 140, I had Liam Brannigan on to discuss Polars, and we did a deep dive there of, of why to use it and how it can speed up your life. Well, here's a way that you could practice a lot of that stuff if you're interested. This cookbook is by uh, Escobar West. He's the guy who forked it, and it uses three different data sets, which are included in the notebooks and stuff that you can play with. Some are 311 calls in New York, and then how many people on Montreal's bike paths in 2012. And then another Montreal thing about weather from 2012. But it takes you through these different chapters of reading from a CSV, selecting data, and finding the most common complaint type. Oh, I guess that must be the complaint line in New York. He has a whole section on cleaning up messy data, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, having dealt with this myself, um, zip codes are a lot of fun as far as U.S. zip codes, especially if by default they get turned into integers. The New York zip codes start in the zero range. So what would have been like three zeros and maybe 83 just come out as the integer 83. And you're like, what? Oh, that's weird. That doesn't seem like a zip code. So there's having to convert that stuff into more understandable stuff. Work with not only, you know, standard data frame stuff, but like string operations, um, working with dates, parsing Unix timestamps, and then, you know, loading data in a variety of ways. You can access the whole thing from a hosted binder notebook, but you can also set up Jupyter and install Polars, and it has a requirements.txt file that you can basically do a pip install from there. And there's also a way to run the whole cookbook from a Docker container, and all that's in this GitHub repo for you to dive into. So if you want to have a chance to kind of play around and practice some Polar skills, or Panda skills. Uh, I'll include links for both of them so that you can kind of see ways to practice those skills. What do you have as a project this week? 
So I'm bringing something which is a third-party library for Django called Django Waffle. Okay. It's a feature flag tool. So uh, the idea of a feature flag is you're able to release features to a subset of your users. It's a great way to sort of beta test stuff in production code. And typically, you can pick and choose who can see something. And if it's not fully baked, you know, you just open it up to like friendly users. Google's a big fan of this mechanism. In fact, most Chrome is uh, most features in Chrome are done this way. They don't really do staged releases. There isn't like an alpha and a pre-alpha and whatever. They just release the browser. And if you've got the setting turned on, you can play. And if it, you don't, you don't even know that it's there. So this is a common way in large organizations to try and do sort of beta testing without having to manage separate servers. So Django Waffle uses the uh, ORM, the database, to set up flags. And you can associate those flags with a bunch of different situations. Uh, You can turn them on for super users or staff. You can associate them with a Django user group. You can manually select which users see it. And there's like a rollout mode that allows you to incrementally expose the feature over time. So it can be like, this is, you know, pick 10% of my users and now pick 15% and, and do that to sort of incrementally put a feature out there. You use the Django admin to create the flags and set up the rules. And then in your code, you import waffle and either check the state of a flag using some functions, uh, like in an if block, or they also have decorators and mix-ins. So like you can set an entire function or entire class uh, to be conditional based on these things. And of course, because it's Django, they also have template tags, Jinja callback. Yeah. Uh, and this allows you to sort of do, check the same kind of conditions inside of your HTML. In addition to flags, they also have something called switches, which is really just sort of a simplified flag, which is just on or off, and samples, which are random. So if you want to test against random users, it'll do this. By default, it tracks the choices for a user with a cookie. Uh, So you're not having to hit the database each time. And for things like the random one, if, if you randomly were picked, it's not like the feature disappears for you randomly. Next time it tracks so you get it. That can cause some complications if you're rolling features out incrementally. So there's also a way of turning that off. So nice set of controls here. A neat little package. Uh, It's been around forever, but it still seems to be fairly well maintained. uh, And they're actively still adapting it to newer versions. Useful thing to keep in mind if you're working on a longer-lived Django project. Might be worth checking out. That's one of the larger number of contributors I've seen on a project. Yeah, usually we call out who built it, and I think there was there were it was dozens. So uh, yeah, yeah, and and the <laughs> uh, and the root repository is also named Django Waffle, right? The the GitHub account is named Django Waffle as well. So uh, I'm not sure who the original contributor was, but it's uh, it, it has it's been kicking around for a while, and a lot of interested folks. All right, well, thanks for bringing all these articles and projects this week, Chris. Always fun. All right. Talk to you soon. Cheers. And don't forget, automatically find and fix vulnerabilities in your Python projects for free with Sneak. Create your free Sneak account at sneak.co slash realpython. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, 
Christopher Paley, and look forward to talking to you soon.